the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week we're talking about the cost of living crisis facing many people and the major pensions bill that is facing the state. Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times explains why not biting the bullet on pushing out the age of the state pension will cost future generations. While Eddie Casey of the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council explains why the government should not change course on increasing the carbon tax or reduce VAT on fuels amid pressure to help people make ends meet. We began by talking about pensions, with Cliff Taylor explaining the importance of an Oireachtas Committee's recent recommendation that the current age of 66 for receipt of the state pension should be maintained. Yeah, I think we've been delaying a decision on this one for for a good few years now. And as you say, it was clear in the last general election how hot a political topic this is. The age was due to rise to 67 in in January of, of last year. That was put off, the legislation was changed and it was all thrown to this pension commission, as you said, chaired by Josephine Feely, the former chair of the Revenue Commissioners. And the, the pension commission put a, put a good shape on it, I thought, in the sense that they, they outlined the problem very clearly, that this thing is going to become unaffordable gradually over, over the next 10 or 15 years, unless we do something about it. And they said, look, wh- wh- what are we going to do? And they suggested that various groups in society pay a bit of the burden so that some of it would fall on the general taxpayer with about around 10% of the uh, cost of the state pension each year coming from the general exchequer. At the moment, the general exchequer only, only chips in when the when the sums don't add up, if you like. But but they were suggesting that this be put in place on a permanent basis. They also suggested, as you say, a gradual increase in the pension age and that pensioners should uh, in future be uh, be liable to pay PRSI on, on all their income, except for their social welfare income and the state pension itself. So it's kind of divvying up the burden, if you like, between the general taxpayer, future pensioners and existing pensioners in a fairly kind of thoughtful way. But what the uh, Oireachtas Commission on Social Protection has come and said now, and and, and representatives of all the political parties were on this uh, Oireachtas Committee, chaired by Dennis Nocton, was that the state pension aid shouldn't increase at all, uh, that it should stay where it is at 66. And they kind of fudged how that was going to be paid for. They agreed with the commission that PRSI and the self-employed should should increase and that PRSI and employers should increase. But they nixed, if you like, the pension age, as you said. And they also said that, you know, some kind of wealth tax could be considered in future, kind of realising, I think, that there was a, was a gap in their sums. But really, they didn't outline how they felt this bill should be paid uh, in the long term, in the years ahead. So I think the government's left with a bit of a conundrum now. They've asked another commission, the Tax and Welfare Commission, to correct the Pension Commission's homework, if you like, and to report to them by the end of February and what should be done. It's not at all clear what that commission is going to say, but I'd be surprised if some kind of increase in the in the state pension age wasn't part of their recommendation to government. But yet we've seen from the Oireachtas Committee how, how hot this is politically. So it's a really difficult call for the government. Now, the increase in the pension age recommended by the commission was really gradual much less than had been expected previously. But even that, it seems, uh, at the moment, is a difficult one for our legislators to swallow. It's a tricky one to sell, given the cost of living issues that are hanging around at the minute, Cliff. We had this morning some data on rents from daft.ie showing that uh, nationally, you know, rents are uh, really high levels, over €1,500, uh, Euro, and in Dublin it's over uh, €2,200. Euro. That's, that's kind of the, the average rent. 
And if you tell a, a taxpayer, even though retirement might be some years off, if you tell them that they're going to have to uh, forego uh, another couple of years before they get their estate pension, that's another sort of 26, 27 grand, essentially, that you're taking out of their pocket, isn't it? Yeah, it all, I mean, you're right. It, it does play into this story, all right. And that's one of the reasons why it's so sensitive at the moment. But the flip side is that if this isn't done, the bill is going to have to be paid some other way and it's going to come out of general taxation. So people are going to pay one way or another, if you like. So that if the pension age doesn't go up, there's no doubt that PRSI, for example, is going to have to increase much much more sharply and much earlier than it would otherwise. So, you know, we have a big bill coming down the tracks here and, and some way is going to have to be found to, to square the circle. I mean, those who kind of oppose the increase in the pension age say, look, we need to look at take a long-term look at the sustainability of the public finances and what can be done here and, and how we can avoid this and that people have paid for their pensions and that it's only fair that they get them. And, you know, they have a point, but the consequences of that argument, if you like, are not being addressed squarely and face on. And the consequences are that if we don't pay for it one way, we're going to pay for it another way. And the other way is going to be higher taxes and higher PRSI. There's absolutely no question about that because we're looking at a, on the calculation at the moment of a gap, an annual gap of around 2.4 billion by 2030 in the social insurance fund, uh, if nothing is done, uh, and 8.6 billion by 2040. So it's a slow, it's a slow burning problem, if you like, but it's not one that can be avoided. The other possibility is you decide to cut the amount people are paid in the state pension, but I don't think anyone thinks that's a good idea. Well, I, I can't imagine who would stand on an election platform uh, to cut the state pension. I, I don't think that would be a very smart no, idea. Uh, Eddie Casey, what's IFAC's view on this pension conundrum that the government is facing? So the Fiscal Council has looked at this in quite a bit of detail over the last couple of years. We've uh, published a report looking at the costs of ageing out to 2050 and various challenges faced by the state for the public finances and the economy. Um, and our view basically is that there are big costs coming down the tracks. Uh, Ireland really faces a twin challenge in terms of ageing. Uh, the, the first thing is that we're living longer. So in 1980, the average 65-year-old would have lived to about 79. Today, it's to about 85. And by 2050, we could be living to as far as 89. But the pension age over that time span hasn't really increased. So it's increased from 65 to 66 just by one year, even though we're looking at an expansion of about 10 years uh, of retirement for the average 65-year-old. Um, and then the second side of that is that there's more people hitting retirement. So we had this baby boom in the 70s and 80s, which was a lot later than the rest of Europe. Um, and because that, if you look at the shape of Ireland's population, because that bulge in the population around the 40s, 50s age group is kind of encroaching on retirement very soon, we can see that just the number, the, the sheer number of people entering retirement quite soon will, will rapidly increase. And when we had a conference uh, a couple of years ago with uh, someone from the OECD who looks at pensions in particular, Hervé Bull, he, he said that really what Ireland needs to get to grips with is just the pace of its ageing. It's, it's, it's going to be one of the fastest uh, in the world. Uh, and this is a kind of hard thing to get your head around. But if we look at just what's going to happen, the age uh, profile in Ireland, we could see a near doubling of the share of the population over 65 from 14% to 27% and a shrinking in the population age 20 to 64, so from 59% to 50%. Um, so the, the number of, one way to think of how sustainable is the system is what number of workers are, it, it, will there be for each pensioner? So if you think of uh, workers being those aged 20 to 64, uh, for people drawing pensions, maybe those over 65, it would have been about six 
uh, per pensioner in 2008. It's down to about four now. And by 2050, it could be below two. Uh, so so the, the, the pressure on the workforce to, to fund retirement and, and pension payments is, is growing. Uh, and, and some people might kind of get the sense that the contributions they pay into, uh, into state pensions and things like that over the course of their lifetime fully funds uh, pensions that are drawn down. down. That's, that's what a lot of people think, it, but it's not the case. It's actually the case that today's pen, the taxpayers will fund a large share of pension payments today. Um, so, so really what we've seen now is a shift from uh, wanting to increase the pension age to try to deal with some of the costs of these things uh, to putting more of the burden on the taxpayer potentially. Um, you asked for what well, what's the fiscal council's view of this. I, I think kind of similar to the pension commission, we recognize that the scale of the challenge is just so big and, and Cliff outlined the, the funding cost there. If we again look to 2050, we're looking at about 13 billion uh, hole that the pension commission identified and something that needs to be filled. That's about the size of the education system. So funding, if you were to fund all of that uh, from scratch in one year, uh, it, it's a massive challenge. Um, the commission did a good job of trying to identify a way to spread the damage so that you know the impact wasn't too severe on any one part of the economy or population. Um, and it looked at doing it in a way that would basically put about a, a third say about 30% on pension age increases, um, about half on PRSI increases, and then about 15% on other unspecified measures. And you can read that as being tax increases and spending uh, reductions elsewhere. But what the, the kind of recent proposals like the joint committees seem to be pushing towards is rather than having potentially two-thirds of the package funded by tax and PRSI, it's now looking like about 90% could be funded by tax and PRSI. So th there's a lot of pressure on the tax system. And I guess the worry from the fiscal council side is if this is the route we want to go down, that's, that's fine. It's a legitimate choice. And it's not really our role to say whether or not this is the way you should go about it. But it just means that we're using a lot of the ammo that we have to deal with one pension problem, uh, one long-term challenge. But there are other challenges. There's things like, what are we going to do to fund climate change costs uh, that are going to be potentially massive? And we, we really haven't seen the costs on those yet. And what if there's a, a reduction in corporation tax receipts in, in the coming years? We know that these have been running very hot for quite some uh, time now. And, and there's a risk that these could reverse. So if you use all of your ammunition to increase PRSI, uh, it, it looks like you could exhaust a lot of the scope to, to, uh, to fund these big challenges in the future. Cliff, this really is an intergenerational debate, isn't it? A pits young against old. And you were writing in your column in the Irish Times um, last Saturday about how young people have been screwed on housing uh, effectively in recent years. And uh, now they face being screwed on, on pensions as well. It's a really hot area of debate, depending on your age. Yeah, I, I mean, I was really struck, I suppose, reading the, uh, the Oireachtas Committee report, how at every step of the way, they favoured the older group over the younger group. So they they favoured the retirement age staying as it is. They went against the idea of PRSI being imposed on people over 66, which it isn't at the moment. And they even um, went out of their way to say that any extra revenue raised from this should, shouldn't go towards funding the uh, the obligatory sign-up the uh, of, of pensions for younger people, which is now kind of part of government policy, the auto-enrollment auto plan to get more younger people to sign up for uh, for private sector pensions so that they won't face reliance on the state pension when they when they come to retire. 
So it just seemed to me that at every step of the way, the Oireachtas Committee was 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 taking the view that the, the older people should be protected. And I think, as Eddie said, it's already obvious that people who are still working uh, are going to be paying a lot of the bill anyway. And it's just a question of whether whether the older population, the population coming close to retirement, should take some of the hit or not. And the view of the committee uh, clearly was that, you know, that they shouldn't, that older people should be protected at, at every twist of the road, if you like, from this. And it just seemed to me like, uh, it seemed to me it seemed to me to be an unfair approach to take, particularly as, as, as in their report, as, as far as I read it anyway, they didn't, they didn't kind of acknowledge this in any way. They didn't kind of uh, reference the burden on younger people or, 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 or workers um, uh, or indeed kind of address the fact that what they were recommending left a big hole, which was inevitably going to be filled by general workers in the years ahead. Yeah, and all of the political parties, none of them are talking about increasing taxes. And now, I know that, uh, strictly speaking, PSI might fall outside of, uh, of those promises in that they... You know, they say they won't increase direct income taxes and they're talking about, you know, the, the rate you pay, whether uh, depending on what you earn. But they're not necessarily talking about, uh, they haven't made that promise necessarily around PRSI or USC, have they? No, they haven't. And I think PRSI is going to be the first place where, you're right, the system, if you like, is going to look for to get extra cash. And I think there's kind of, a, there's, three, there's three places that are going to be looked at. The first is employers PRSI, which is generally low in Ireland compared to other European countries. So I think that's definitely going to increase over the next few years. I think the only problem is that it's already probably been spent three or four times over in various proposals that have come out so that, you know, it's it's seen as a something that will contribute to additional sick pay rights for people. It's seen as something that might contribute to um, a new system of unemployment benefits. And now it's seen as uh, something that might contribute to, to the pensions thing. So, you know, there's only so much and so far that a higher employer PRSI can take. And the second place PRSI is going to go up is for self-employed people. There's no doubt that they've got a lot of entitlements in recent years. And on the flip side, the self-employed rate hasn't gone up. So I think that's going to happen. But the real issue is what's going to happen with, I think, with employee PRSI. And uh, I was just looking at the, at the minutes of the um, Commission on Tax and Welfare there, who've been meeting over the last few months, uh, which are clearly very, very uh, carefully written by civil servants to give away very little of what's going on. But one of the things was that Pascal Donoghue, the finance minister, was, was talking to them a couple of months ago, and he made the point that there was a need for a greater uh, recognition by people of the link between what they pay in and what they get out of the system, particularly in relation to PRSI. So I think the government's selling point on this will be, look, we may be asking you to play a bit more PRSI, but we're going to be improving your benefits and, and shoring up future benefits as well. But you're right, it's a really difficult sell, particularly when I suppose the opposition parties don't need to kind of outline how they would pay all the bills. Uh, whereas if you're in government, that's obviously a big issue. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Eddie Casey, in terms of the cost of living situation that we have at the minute, it's a very hot topic with a lot of people. Again, how does the how does the government square the circle uh, on these numbers? We've got energy costs absolutely shooting through the roof. 
uh, and lots of calls for the government to step in and do something to help people meet these rising bills and also to help in other ways to to dampen inflation, which was running at a 20-year high at 5.5% there uh, at the back end of last year. Um, what do you think the government can do in relation to that? It's a good question, and it's, it's the big challenge of today. Um, so the government is looking at the right types of measures that it can take, things that are basically temporary measures, to, to try to alleviate the costs uh, on where they're, they're most pressing. So in areas like you know energy, uh, fuel costs, those are the types of things that, that we can see the most pronounced impact. Um, if, if there can be temporary measures taken there, then the hope is that over the next year, we actually see these pressures in, in prices begin to alleviate uh, and certainly that's what all all the projections look like. Um, but but on the short term, it, it's going to be really hard. And we can see, like you mentioned, the average inflation rate there. But we can see, actually, if you just look at inflation in consumer items, um, like simple uh, groceries, at the very low end, then uh, the pressures are even high as well, really, there. So it, it's a question of, well, can we get it right in terms of not... Uh, introducing permanent costs that are going to be mass, uh, massive drains in the exchequer into the coming years uh, versus can we actually target these things well and can we make sure that they don't have a kind of sustained impact uh, and, and hit enough people as possible. Well, what's been really hard uh, for the government to do is is to target the people that are most in need um, and you can see that the, the credit it was one that was universal. Everyone was going to get it, even people that wanted to uh, pay it back might have been able to do that. Um, so, so the question is, can we get a, a better targeting uh, and make sure that it's temporary as well? Should they not? I mean, there have been calls for them to delay the carbon taxes. Why not do that? Uh, why not cut the rate of VAT, for example, on fuels? Well, if you remember the last VAT uh, rate cut that we introduced after the financial crisis, it was meant to be brought in for a year or two and it lasted about seven or eight years. Um, so these things, once you introduce them, are, are really hard to reverse uh, and there's a kind of sustained lobbying uh, will will inevitably happen. So that's why... You're talking about the hospitality sector there. Exactly. Uh, so, so these things, even if they're intended to be temporary cuts, um, they're really hard to reverse and, and they leave more kind of holes in the, the exchequer's financing of all activity. So every public service. Uh, so that's one reason that these things are kind of avoided is because they can have long lasting impacts that are difficult to reverse. Um, so, so, so really, if we think of other ways to do it, it, it's to make sure that it's a temporary measure that we, that we have the possibility to reverse it in the near future. Cliff, we spent what about the guts of 50 billion on pandemic supports of one color or another. And obviously, uh, we're looking that we're able to borrow at near zero rates on international markets. But why not? I mean, the argument might be made if we can spend billions to save businesses in the pandemic, why can't we spend uh, a few billion to help householders um, meet these really vast uh, increases in costs that they're experiencing, particularly those who are on lower pay? Yeah, I suppose the thing with the pandemic was that, well, there was always the expectation it was going to be over, that this was temporary and they were clearly, these were clearly temporary measures. So the wage subsidies and the PUP, now we've seen it's difficult enough to wind them down, but they were always going to be temporary measures. And as Eddie said, I think the government's fear now is that uh, whatever it introduces, it's it's going to be, you know, it, it becomes semi-permanent at least. And it's very difficult because this is an external factor. And, and you know, what, what do you actually do to give money back to people, to target the people that really need it. 
the hundred euro payment uh, that's coming through and, and may indeed be increased, you know, is a big deal for for people on on lower incomes and particularly on the very lowest incomes. You know, probably won't even be noticed by by the richest and, and better off in society. So you're effectively wasting a fair bit of cash by giving it to people who don't need it, as well as as well as helping those who do. So I think they're going to. I think there's a lot of political pressure on this, and, and given how rapidly it's happened, they do need to act. So I think we're going to see measure a fair few measures targeted through the welfare system. The fuel allowance may be going up again, maybe. Um, Eligibility for the fuel allowance widened further, uh, possibly quite significantly further. There has been talk uh, of, you know, a general additional welfare payment. The government doesn't seem to want to go down that direction, nor does it want to seem to go down the direction of of special tax credits at the moment. So I think we'll we'll see a we'll see something fairly significant in the next few days, and the government will then hang on and hope that you know through through spring and into summer that this is going to start to ease a bit. That hope that Putin doesn't invade the Ukraine so gas prices don't go way higher again. But who knows? And I think one of the really worrying factors and one of the things that will have had them scratching their heads in the Department of Finance and government buildings is that a few months ago there was the expectation that fuel prices were going to go down again right through this year. Now if you look at forward markets, that's that's not the case. They, they see them hanging in. Now maybe if political tensions ease, that, that would help. But there are other factors at play here as well. And there are long-term upward pressures on, uh, on 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 energy prices as well as we kind of transition to green energy. So, as well as the short-term hit here, there are there are longer-term issues that I think are going to be big issues for the government. And of course, the big question, uh, the one that central banks have been scratching their heads over, is whether whether this is some kind of temporary, really just a temporary bit in inflation, or whether we could actually be looking at something more permanent. With some signs now, certainly in in Ireland, that wages are. Trade unions are, are 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 getting ready to demand much more significant increases in wages, and uh, in turn, businesses are across the board are using the opportunity to push up prices. This isn't just energy prices now. Energy prices are still by far the biggest factor. But uh, as Eddie said, the price of staples has gone up. Bread, cereals, uh, all those kind of things, partly Brexit related, partly supply chain related. Who knows? You know, related to what? The price of your cup of coffee is going up. The price of cars including second-hand cars, has gone up very significantly. The price of household appliances, small and large, also increasing very significantly if you look at the, at the latest figures. So the risk is that this is spreading uh, and becoming embedded a bit and that uh, people's expectations, if you like, and businesses' expectations are changing, which is the really dangerous factor. If I can just add in one point there. So I think you mentioned carbon taxes and the impact here. Like It's important to remember that the, the carbon taxes are making a fractional impact here, you know, it's really the change in energy prices that are driving such a large proportion, if not basically all, you can say, of the, the price increases we're seeing across the board. What's your expectation on wage inflation this year? Cliff mentioned the fact that unions now are really starting to focus on this area and they're going to be looking for substantial increases for their members in light of the cost of living increases that are going through the system at the moment. Yeah, I, I like I don't have the magic eight ball with me today. Um, I, I would guess that they're going to vary a lot. Uh, so we can see massive pressures in some sectors where workers are really starved. Um, you know, so you can see, I think, quantity surveyors, there was very low supply of those. And uh, we could see that construction workers, there's going to be massive pressures. Same workers that are doing retrofits are going to be the ones that are probably building houses as well. 
Um, and we can see in the usual kind of sectors like uh, ICT, you know, tech, um, pharma, that there's big demand for workers there still. And it's, it, those companies are finding it hard to get the migrants in to, to actually uh, fill the roles as well as having Irish people in the roles. So there's going to be some sectors with much higher than the typical amount. But uh, the average kind of forecasts are about 3 to 4%, I think, for this year. Um, the average is going to be misleading uh, more than ever this year. Um, some sectors will will see much higher and some will see much lower. Where, you know, if you look at the, the COVID hit sectors, um, it, it's going to be a big question mark on what happens there because we, we don't know, will there be an influx of workers suddenly now uh, as things open up or will they still find it difficult to attract uh, people into the jobs that were most vulnerable during the last two years. Cliff, we're starting to enter, talk about rip-off Ireland again. Is there price gouging going on out there, do you think? Yeah, I expect there's a bit, all right. <laughs> Maybe not a huge amount. I mean, one of the sectors that's in, where prices have increased are hotels and restaurants. And, you know, you'd have to, you've got to have some sympathy for the hotels and restaurants. They're, they were closed for a large part of the last two years. They're trying to get their staff back on. That's costing them whatever percent more. Uh, to pay them than it was the case in the past. So, you know, the prices are going up. You know, I was uh, in the village where, where I live here today listening to a couple of people who own a coffee shop talking and uh, talking a bit loudly, perhaps from the consumer's point of view. But they were saying, look, if we don't put our prices up now, we never get them pushed up. So there, there, there is also the case, I think, that um, that business people are seeing the, well, the opportunity, if you like, to push up prices. I, I think in fairness as well, a lot of businesses held off last year from putting up costs because they realized, you know, the middle of a pandemic, their businesses were all over the place anyway. Uh, they were getting support from the government and they kind of held off put passing through uh, higher energy costs, passing through higher supply costs uh, because they, they hoped that they would be temporary. Now that they're kind of looking semi-permanent, I think, you know, those things are going to start flowing through as well. So yeah, maybe maybe some opportunism there, but I think I think businesses also have been under a lot of pressure and and, and are feeling the cost pressure from energy, from wages, and and in some cases from from stuff they're buying from suppliers. Uh, inevitably, as things return to some kind of normality, that's going to be passed through to um, to uh, to consumers, and I think that's the trend that's really going to worry the central banks now. Uh, there's a really live debate now internationally about what the central bank should do with uh, big brains, if you like, on both sides of the debate. Some saying, look, they've got to let economies recover. They've got to hold off here. They've got to go gently. And others um, others writing that, you know, they're already behind the curveball on inflation. They've got to move quickly now or, or this is going to become embedded. So it's it's going to be a really interesting one to watch as the year goes on. Eddie, are you expecting the European Central Bank to increase uh, rates this year? And that would obviously have a knock-on impact on mortgage rates. Well, I have enough to worry on the budgetary side of the debate rather than uh, dealing with monetary policy as well. I, I, I don't know is the honest answer. I, I, if I was to guess, I, you know, in uh, me personally, I would say that they'll probably hold off on rate increases. I think they'll they'll try to do things on other sides. Um, but certainly they kind of the change in the mood music is is towards one of potentially tightening rather than uh, uh, easing any further. So it, it looks like some of the central banks are beginning to worry a lot more about inflation and how sticky it'll be. Um, but at the same time, as Cliff says, there's this big concern that you might scupper the recovery just as it's getting started. 
Yeah, Cliff, uh, the Bank of England has already increased its rates and the Fed has uh, signalled three rate increases, I think, for this year. The market's actually expecting a bit more. So how is it that the European Central Bank, so far at least, uh, hasn't signalled any increases? Yeah, the Bank of England have increased twice and the Fed. Um, the Fed could be looking at four or five increases this year now. The number seems to increase every time you look at it. Yeah, the ECB are in a tricky position, I think. And interestingly, some of the comments after the latest meeting from its own board members suggest that they are split along the predictable lines, if you like, with the Germans and Dutch representatives pushing for quicker action and, and many of the others looking to hold off. I think what Christine Lagarde did uh, at, at the meeting last week was really significant nonetheless. Previously, the ECB had been signalling, look, this is going to be temporary, we're going to go softly, softly, we'll do whatever is needed to get inflation back up to 2%. But it seems that the uh, the January inflation figures have rattled the ECB and that they're now seriously worried. And um, what Christine Lagarde said last week, for, for the first time, if you like, she refused to rule out uh, the prospect of an interest rate increase this year, which is, which is really significant. And the language that she used was also significantly more worried than what she'd used before in terms of, of terms of inflation. So clearly the pressures are growing on her and on her board. I think we might see them increase. It's hard. To, it's a hard call. We might see them increase late this year, the deposit rate, which is the rate they pay banks to deposit overnight funds, which is now minus 0.5%. So there's some talk, some analysts expect that that could be back up to 0% by the end of the year. Now, that's not the rate that knocks through directly to um, to track our mortgages. Um, that's, the, that's the main refinancing rate, which, which most people don't expect to increase this year. Nonetheless, any kind of interest rate increase is going to start to be reflected in the markets. You know, could start to feed through to fixed rate offers, could start to feed through to variable rate offers. So I think a lot of nervousness around. And if you look at the Irish government bond market, uh, the rate on... 10-year bonds is now 0.8%. Um, back at the start of the year, it was 0. Point, I think it was 0.1 or 0.2. So it, it's increased fairly significantly. So interest rates still at really low levels, but I think a lot of nervousness around that, 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 that could, you know, about what this year is going to bring. Eddie, um, the budget is still some way off, obviously. It won't come around until October. Um, but the Fiscal Advisory Council, your role is as a budgetary uh, watchdog. Just curious as to, uh, when do you begin your work sort of assessing uh, budgetary forecasts and, um, uh, you know, where, where the government should take the budget? And what kind of interaction is there with the government on the budget? So, so we get involved in a lot of different ways. Uh, the first thing we'll be doing this year is basically rubber stamping uh, or not the macroeconomic forecast that the Department of Finance puts together for its its uh, budgetary documents. So we have this kind of medium-term plan for five years usually uh, that the Department of Finance will issue in April and we would uh, endorse those forecasts on the macro side. So is the econ are the economic projections sensible or not? Are they within a kind of uh, a range of projections that you would imagine are credible? Um, that's kind of one of the roles the fiscal councils like ourselves got given um, late after the financial crisis when uh, in the EU it was realised that actually uh, institutions like ourselves would be very useful to cast an eye over forecasts and assess whether or not um, maybe there's a bit of optimism bias in there 
for how much tax is going to be coming in and whether or not the government is actually dealing uh, with realistic figures for what its budget is going to look like. Uh, but also you can see some countries where there's a bit of pessimism bias. So you can have a bit of gaming maybe by the civil service set, telling politicians that there'll be less money than there actually will be. Um, so one of the ideas was really to get fiscal councils involved early on as external parties that would look at the, the macro forecast. And we'll be doing that basically in the next month. Uh, so we'll be getting new data on what GDP was and what uh, the domestic economy was doing in the last quarter uh, in the next few weeks from the CSO. Then we'll start to produce our own forecasts in-house and we use those as kind of benchmark to assess the, the government's own projections against uh, the department's own projections. The next step we will get involved in is when they actually publish their, their budgetary forecasts on the back of those economic projections. And then we look at those. And then later in the year, we kind of have the lead up to the budget. So we issue a statement about what we think the budget should do in kind of broad parameters. So we, we don't talk about specific measures. Usually we talk about like, what are the important things for us? What's the overall sustainability of Ireland's debt burden? Uh, which is close to 100% of uh, national income now, and what are the deficits that the government is planning on running? Uh, what's the sustainability of the tax base? Is it very concentrated in things like corporation tax, that kind of thing? These are the kind of issues that we deal with a lot, and we try to look forward a longer horizon as well than the, the government would typically look. So there's a lot of kind of you know focus on today and issues that are very hot and heavy, like uh, inflation, we'll say, at the moment. But those kind of long-term issues, like uh, climate change costs, like aging of the population uh, that could have big implications they tend to get forgotten and we try to bring focus to those a lot in, in, in terms of our interaction um, I think you asked like what are the interactions with the government and departments it's kind of a misnomer that we're an advisory council it's not like we're advisors to the minister <laughs> we don't get to meet the minister uh, typically I, I think we could count on one hand the number of times we've actually encountered them uh, face to face um, really what we are is an independent body that's there to look at the overall budgetary system and whether or not it's sustainable or not uh, and to give advice to the public. And how we work is really by talking to uh, the media, to uh, parliamentary committees, to um, the public through reports and through other uh, forums. And, and really the idea is to get these kind of arguments out there that are that tend to be forgotten in the debate. And part of it is, as one of our old uh, chairpersons used to say, was to institutionalise the kind of memories of the, the last crisis, you know, the financial crisis, when Ireland got things so spectacularly badly wrong uh, in that it developed a, a massively unsustainable uh, tax base, all linked to a property bubble. And then when all of those receipts dried up, we were left with a uh, huge spending uh, to adjust down. Um, so it's, it's really to try to deal with these problems uh, in a way that maybe a lot of other domestic commentators wouldn't look at uh, if there wasn't a body like ourselves. Cliff, just to round us off, um, the government parties are obviously getting it in the neck over the cost of living issues at the moment. Sinn Féin are riding high in the polls and obviously heavily critical of government policy around this. The government isn't doing enough in their eyes. I'm just wondering... You know, if Sinn Féin uh, were in government, I don't know if you've done this uh, critique yourself, but if Sinn Féin were in government, would would things be much better? Would they be able to make the sums work? I think they face exactly the same problems as uh, as the current administration would. I mean, one of the one of the uh, benefits of being in opposition is that you can uh, you can criticize everything, you can oppose everything, and always be on the side of the punter. And you know that's no reflection on on, on Sinn Féin particularly. That's just just the way opposition works. But I think they're going to face the same the same issues. Uh, I mean, in fairness, they've 
each year in the budget, they have always produced their own budget projections, their own budget sums. Uh, they've suggested where money might be raised, generally focuses on the wealthier parts of the population, uh, those earning over 100,000, uh, the concept of a wealth tax, um, those kind of areas that you, you would expect. But there's also, a, I think, a populist bent uh, in Sinn Féin, as we know. Um, so, for example, their opposition to the local property tax, which strikes me as really strange from a party that's, I guess, a left-wing party, um, because houses are, are a key part of people's wealth and, and, and their opposition or their uh, scepticism anyway about, about the idea of a carbon tax. Uh, and, you know, you've got to ask, if you don't put a carbon tax in place, how the heck are you going to uh, start to address this issue of climate change? So I think it makes bag. And I think, you know, it is going to be interesting to see how they conduct themselves now over the next couple of years as politics gets back to, you know, quotes, normal. Uh, the debates get back to normal. And I guess they're forced... Uh, just as the government is forced to address the big issues that the opposition is forced to kind of put forward policies as as the next election comes into sight. So I think it's going to be really interesting. Certainly some of their policies seem to have moved back to, a, bit, a bit towards the centre, if you like, and, and to be a bit less extreme than would have been the case. They clearly have some interesting ideas on housing and what should be done there, whether whether those things can be delivered or not, given the huge constraints, of course, is a huge question. But I think it's going to be really interesting to watch. All right, Cliff Taylor and Eddie Casey, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Eddie Casey and Cliff Taylor. The show was produced by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.